Hey everyone, Steve from Survivor here, and welcome to a supplementary edition of the Friendly Fire Show podcast. I don't have Ben with me, but we will be discussing Ubisoft Forward very shortly. Uh, while you are waiting for that, we have the opportunity to present to you two interviews uh, that we got to conduct ahead of uh, time, obviously, before today's Ubisoft Forward live stream. It's the 13th of July. Just for uh, the record, I suppose. Anyway, uh, we have two interviews to share with you if you want to listen to them. The first runs for a little over 10 minutes long. It's with Far Cry 6's Navid Kavari, who's the narrative director at Ubisoft Toronto, working on that uh, particular game. We then have a second interview with another Ubisoft Toronto uh, representative. It's Watchdogs Legion. Sean Crooks, the lead producer, speaks with me for about 17 minutes or so. So I hope you enjoy both of these interviews. Toronto's super busy. Um, I guess I am curious to feel or get the feel of the, the mood in your virtual office, um, you know, continuing work on Legion, doing all the other stuff you have to do, but now acting for the first time as a lead on uh, Far Cry 6. Yeah, it's a little bit like standing on the shoulders of giants. Um, you know, I was fortunate enough to have been able to work on Far Cry 5 and, and Far Cry 4. Uh, and really, uh, as a team, we did a lot of CODEV projects with the Montreal team. Um, and so we got to witness firsthand how they approached uh, making some amazing Far Cries. Um, and when it came to leading Far Cry 6, um, what was great was they came on and actually have taken on about a third of the, the world um, and we have learned so much uh, just from working together and you know the beauty of working on a Far Cry is that uh, and it keeps me coming back uh, every time is that each time the context is sort of different it has its own feel its own kind of world, its own uh, story, um, and you can bring uh, new things to the table. Uh, and I think with Far Cry 6, once we kind of latched on to this idea of a guerrilla revolution, a guerrilla fantasy, um, we knew exactly the type of game that we wanted to make. James wanted to keep me in suspense with the reveal of the game when we did the pre-brief, and I'm like all smart and cocky and I'm like oh, I bet it's Far Cry 6 thanks Giancarlo um, but then like the video started and I was absolutely floored in like the best way possible um, I guess the question is how or why did Ubi get to the decision to present Far Cry like it's going to be like the next big budget like binge worthy Netflix show rather than you know just a video game I think right from the beginning, uh, when you tap into the idea of creating a, a sort of modern guerrilla revolution, and then tap into the idea of creating a country um, with a capital city uh, for the first time in a far cry, um, we really wanted to take the narrative you know, uh, to the next level with that, and also look at it in terms of if we're creating a country and we're creating a revolution, that also means a few things. First of all, on the sort of guerrilla side of things um, that the player as Danny Rojas is going to experience, um, you know, we like to think of uh, revolutions as uh, monoliths. You know, we like to think of these rebel groups as monoliths, um, and it's not the case. You know, there's all sorts of different groups that are jostling for power, um, and that became really interesting to us, just as you would uh, look at a Netflix series. Uh, for example, or seasons of a Netflix series. And we, we wanted to approach the story in the same way of, of there's these multiple groups that you can experience their stories um, as you please. And then on the flip side of that, having uh, an antagonist 
uh, like Anton Castillo, someone who was, um, you know, born in the seat of power, whose father uh, uh, 50 years ago ruled the country and then was executed uh, by, by revolutionaries, to have a character like that that has grown up with this twisted worldview and is actually elected to power and once elected, turns the island into into essentially a slave state. Um, when it came to, to building uh, an antagonist like Anton, um, we came at it from a point of, you know, our players are really looking for sort of a modern, mature, uh, and, and that's something, a mature antagonist, and that's something that Far Cry has always done extremely well. So when we were looking at Anton, it was really about not only is this guy in charge of a country, he's also a father. And so I think um, uh, those two dynamics coming together, that there's this complex com uh, group of uh, revolutionaries and guerrillas like with their own different worldviews of how to save the country, couple that with sort of this Goliath of, of Anton, who you're going to get a window into the psyche of, uh, it became really, really exciting for us to explore. That's awesome. Um, obviously, your your Anton, the voice actor. Why am I blanking? Uh, Esposito, Giancarlo yeah, Esposito. Huge, yeah. huge get. Um, was he your first choice for the role? Did did you write for him, or did he just kind of suit the role that you'd already written? Like, how did that all come about? Well, when we started with Anton, uh, you know, the, there was, you know, the, the villain in a Far Cry, the antagonist in a Far Cry, there's a whole lot of pressure there to live up to, to those that came before. And when we were working on Anton, um, once we had the idea, uh, the crux of the idea of, you know, we want a dictator who has a father-son dynamic, um, everything sort of flowed from there. And as we were looking to cast, honestly, just one name kept coming up again and again and again, uh, which was... Giancarlo um, and it became a thing of like do you think he'd want to do it um, and when we reached out uh, and and learned that he was excited about it we actually flew down to New York and had sort of a first meeting um, and he came in uh, fedora suit uh, the classiest dresser I've ever seen and I'm in my hoodie like I did not dress the part for this um, and he came in and was so well versed so uh, uh, had you know copious notes on the material I'd sent before both the backstory and the scripts and we sat down and we honestly talked for about four hours just about the character why is Anton doing what he's doing and how, what can he bring in the performance and the understanding of the character to create a sort of empathy uh, for Anton? And, and really he honed in on this idea of Anton, not just as a dictator, but as a father. Um, and then when we actually started looking at the scripts, you know, he, he sort of turned to me like head on, eye to eye, and, and started reading some of the lines, and I was like, oh my god, that is Anton Castillo. And I was also terrified for my life, but um, <laughs> he brings such an amazing uh, care to developing the characters that he's a part of. Uh, it was a really amazing experience. And I'm sure we could talk about him for like another half an hour, but shotgun approach. I'm going to hit as many things as I can. Go for it, yeah. <laughs> um, with Danny, um, I guess she's he or she they are interesting um 
in the last couple Far Cry games, and I know AJ is a bit of a stretch because he was a native, but then he left and then came back. Um, we're kind of used to playing as, as foreigners who enter a new region, and maybe we're not sure of what's going on, so there's a lot of chance for exposition, to, you know, like, this is how the world is set up, and this is how this structure is set up. Um, I'm assuming with Danny, because he or she is is from Yara, you kind of lose that, that chance. So you're going to have to, you know, world build in different ways. Can you talk to, I guess, the decision to have, you know, like a, a native character rather than someone coming into a, a, a new and weird situation? I think it came from the revolution, the idea of revolution itself, from the idea of, uh, of a guerrilla movement. Um, right from the beginning, uh, if we want our players, uh, we, if we wanted our players to be, feel like a personal investment in that guerrilla movement, um, you need to be born and raised in the country that it begins in. Um, and so for us, uh, it became incredibly important for us to have Danny uh, be a be a local. Um, you're going to be able to play Danny as male or female, um, and Danny is a character that grew up in the capital city of Esperanza, uh, is a military dropout, and wasn't necessarily looking to be part of the revolution or joining the Libertad movement, but gets swept up um, in this guerrilla revolution, and so. When you're looking at the dynamics of a of a revolution, to to really get into a character that feels they need to be they've been pushed so far that they need to pick up a gun and fight, um, it became almost by necessity that the character was born and raised in Yara. Nice. Um, one more serious one, then a fun one, and then that's it. I promise. Um, how do you think the urban setting will change the familiar Far Cry formula that we're all used to? Super excited that we uh, we have a capital city. I think uh, you know when you do a country, you build a country. You gotta have a capital city. Uh, the team has put in such amazing work to make that happen. Um, there's two things that happen on the narrative side. Um, it kind of fulfills the need of a guerrilla revolution where you're going to have the guerrillas, you know, in the farmlands, in the jungles, in the mountains, but also have this city that sort of represents uh, the lion's den, the core of Anton's power. And when you walk into that city, you get to experience and feel Anton's oppression with both propaganda and, you know, the scope of, you know, the Capitol building and, and that kind of thing. But on the gameplay side as well, we're going to be talking about that a lot more at a later date. But what I can say is, you know, the verticality uh, that you have in a capital city uh, in an urban setting really uh, changes how you play. Uh, it's very new to the Far Cry experience. I think um, there's going to be a lot of fun surprises to come uh, for players, and I can't wait for them to experience it. Oh, definitely looking forward to that. Um, survivor tradition. We always ask Dan, and God, like he came to Sydney not too long ago. It feels like a lifetime ago. A long ago, yeah. Jeez. Yeah, anyway, um, we ask Dan what his favorite new aggressive animal is in Far Cry, in this Far Cry. It might be too early for you to tell me. If you can't tell me, I'm going to take a rain check, but if you can tell me, I'm all ears. I can absolutely tell you. It's chorizo. Uh, chorizo is uh, going to be an amazing amigo. Um, when the concept for chorizo was done, uh, I'm not kidding. The next day I came into the office, everyone's wallpaper was chorizo, the sausage dog. Um, and uh, the little tease I'll give is he kills them with kindness. Uh, that's about all I can say on that. 
That's so good. I hope I hope Trees was part of the asset pack. Asset pack. If not, I'm going to be hitting up James really hard. Um, I, I'm over yeah. time. Thank you so so much for your time, guys. Yeah. Very oh, much appreciated. You. It was a really real pleasure. I, I, it's hard not to start with the COVID question. So, like, how are you doing? How is how are you doing? Um, obviously, as as Ubisoft Toronto, um, and I guess at kind of at the tail end of of development, getting ready for for launch. Um, so actually, it's been very interesting. Um, the team adapted really well. With us being a, a global company with offices and many studios, we're, we're already kitted out pretty well to work remotely. So actually, there was some adjustment of cost, but the, the team rapidly, uh, we figured out ways to work. In fact, in some ways, we found work, ways that work better from home than, you, than they would in the office in some instances. Uh, we have great reviews, for example, of the game that work out super well externally. So, you know, as always, it's a slow start, but uh, we're, we're pretty happy with the speed in which we're able to uh, figure everything out and make everything work, continue with all the important tasks that we had to do. And uh, we're pretty strongly on track. So it was, uh, it's been a pretty successful story and how the team adapted, which is great. That's awesome. And I guess, like you were saying, it, it probably is a bit easier for Ubisoft because you do have all these teams around the world working on things. So it's not so much outside the norm as, as other um, publishers, other studios might feel it's happening. What has worked so well that you're going to maybe continue forward with that uh, model or process, you know, once you can go back and work at least as, as Toronto in the same office? Um, I mean, the, the thing that I've enjoyed the most is the, the, the reviews of the game. We were able to, you know, be, before we would do it in a, in a room, we try and get a bunch of the key people in a room to review the game and, and give feedback. Uh, but now because it's global and everyone is guaranteed to be at home in front of a computer, we can expand that review session, have some additional ru- rules, do full recordings, so we can log all the issues and bugs and have references directly to that video. So just the detail we can add to our reviews uh, and the number of people and the, and the procedures we can add in there to make sure that it doesn't become crazy. Yet we still get all this detail has been really, really, really useful. And that's the type of thing I would like to keep. That's cool. Um, and with Toronto, obviously you guys have been working on Legion for a while, but we've I've recently found out that um, you've you've taken the lead for the first time on Far Cry 6. So that's one. Congratulations to the studio. Is Has that you know, been, it's been four years, I guess, in development. Has that really changed the way that Toronto's had to work internally over that whole time? Or is it just like a challenge that you guys were excited to take on board? Um, no, no, it's, it's, it's actually, um, I mean, I, I can't talk for Far Cry, obviously. I can only talk for, for um, Watch Dogs Legion. But um, as Ubisoft, we're always working on many projects with many different studios with differing team sizes. So the idea of introducing you know, another, another project into the studio, there's always numerous going on at any one time. So it's, it's, you know, it's um, it, we used to it. It's it's uh, we we have a we have a good system for it. We used to have that way of working, so it, it, it becomes sort of norms quite quickly. You could have it's very cool. And, yeah, it's very cool to be able to lead. I'm sure that team is very proud. Nice. Um, so I was speaking with uh, to Shelley about Legion. It seems like a lifetime ago. It wasn't that long ago, which is terrifying. Shelley, Shelley Johnson. Yes, um, she was in Sydney. Yes. I forget when. Sometime late last year, I believe. Jacob could tell me. But anyway, yes. it doesn't really matter. Um, she was talking about the the complexity of Legion. Obviously, with the ability to play as any character in in the world, um, she saw the, the 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 biggest challenge to her was kind of like the AI modeling and trying to get everything done um, without doing it like procedurally generated. Is that is that accurate in your mind? Your take on it, or do you think there's a bigger challenge in, in you know presenting this system to players? Um, so the 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 players anyone breakthrough um, as always with breakthroughs that are that are that technically uh, challenging, they're complicated, they're difficult. Um, 
And, and as always, I think the, the way in which we've grown and how to use that and find the best elements that we feel the player would give the player the best experience, that's kind of been what we've tried to focus on over the last 12 months since we, we, we edited E3 last year. So, for example, one of the changes we made was back then we were using RPG system, but we've completely switched it to more of an action adventure. Now we have a whole bunch of new abilities, um, properties on characters. So now, for example, um, we've moved away from stats. So you can find people with, you know, um, particular gadgets on them, people that have uh, now paintball, paintball guns. Um, they have wrenches that they can use or crowbars or other kinds of melee weapons. You can now find other weapons in general in the world or abilities on people, such as uh, people who, you know, um, become stronger when they're drunk, for example. So we've, we've moved a, a lot away from, from kind of granular differences between people and really embraced that people people want and, you know, they wanted meaningful and, and player style differences that were greater around their characters. And that's a lot of the feedback we had last year. And that's where we've pushed players anyone over the last 12 months and uh, one of the big feedback we had was players wanted um, they wanted their jobs to mean something and matter. And, and at last E3, um, people would leave their jobs as they joined DeadSec, whereas now we introduced mechanics such as uniformed access. So now if you have a, a construct, you were a construction worker or an Albion officer or a police officer or whatnot, you can now use that job as a way to enter locations and be more stealthy and create less um, conflict in those locations. So, uh, you know, all that kind of stuff is what we've been focused on. And I think... Um, I think the big challenge of the last 12 months has been that it's been, so now we've, we've got something that we love, but how can we really bring out the best of those mechanics as players, anyone, and also give the players what they wanted and then listen to the feedback that they give us at uh, the last E3. Nice. I have so many questions about this and it, uh, like full <laughs> disclosure, I got to watch gameplay. I didn't get to do the hands-on myself. We're in lockdown okay, again okay. in Melbourne. It's great. Um, anyway. I heard it. Yeah, that's uh, crazy. <laughs> Whoops. Um, with with this kind of change to the the way that the characters are kind of presented in the world, uh, I get my first question is: Is there like a limit to how many recruits you can have in your like active roster at one point? Do we know that type of information yet? Yeah, it's currently forty, but obviously at any point in time you can choose to kick kick people out and add people in at your choice. Nice. So yeah. say say you say you have a character that. Um, uh, you played with for a while, but you found someone that's super cool and you're out of slots, you can make that switch. Nice. And you're not really like, you're not limited to like 10 slots or something. So you have to choose between like, do I take a construction worker or do I take a cop? It seems like there's, you've got a, a pretty wide uh, roster, so it's not going to be that type of issue, which is good. Um, exactly. You have 40 and I, and I can maybe add a bit to that too. Um, whenever you enter a location, as long as you're not inside the combat zone of that location or engaged in combat in any meaningful way, you can quickly swap between whoever's in your roster. Um, you can either swap to them through the map so you can quickly dock to people because their lives continue when you're not playing them. So they'll actually move around the world and you can jump to them. Or you can actually call them directly to that location and do an immediate swap if you want to use them for that particular challenge that's in front of you. Nice. And is there like a cooldown on the like on swapping? Or can you just No, there's no cooldown. As long as you're not like in a mission in the middle of it, you know, like in, in a combat scenario. There you go. Perfect. Cool. Um, is there any like swapping of character abilities to different recruits? As an example, like if I was playing as a cop and I really, really liked playing as the cop but i wanted the construction workers wrench or something is can you do like swapping of inventory or anything like that or is it kind of just go to the construction worker and use him or her so we've kind of done that in two different ways 
so the first way is actually the way we've applied the, the players anyone properties and abilities on characters in the world. So for example, if I take a street artist, they could have a, a gas mask, so they have protection from from gas bombs and stuff like that. They'll have spray can takedowns. They'll have um, paintball guns and paint grenades, for example. And that's kind of a, a character with a lot of ability stat. Those are, are harder or rarer to find. Whereas at the other end of the spectrum, I could find, a, I profile someone and they're a, they're a nail manicurist. And they have a paint, a paint grenade because obviously they have a bag full of paint, right? They have nail polish. So what we do is it's not necessarily the ability to, to, to manually configure. It's about exploring the world, looking for these fantasies and looking at what combination of these different properties you can find that you like on people. If you spot them and it inspires you or inspires a, a play style from you, then that's what encourages a lot of people to recruit that person. You know, yeah. you might find a, a melee weapon with a particular ability that you like, but you've never seen them together before, but suddenly they're together in one person. You're like, ooh, ooh this one, you save them and you're, you're avidly following them and they tend to be bottled in a way that supports what they do as a job or a fantasy or whatnot. And then the other angle we took is over the last year, we've added um, what we call a dead set tech tree and tech points. So now you can find tech points in the world, spend them in, in what we call the, the tech screen, the dead set technology screen. Um, and then you can unlock new gadgets. So this is all focused around hacking and technology to do with dead tech. So you can have spider bots that cloak, spider bots that convert into turrets, kamikaze bombing drones, cloaks, um, the ability to hack certain things like the, the combat drones in the world or the turrets. Um, and you can spend them, and then you can apply them, the gadgets specifically to your character. So, for example, say my character right now has the clock. I can edit them, purchase a spider bot with tech points, there's turret, and apply it to my character. So I can swap in and out the gadgets. Also, if I buy new guns from the tech tree, because there's a whole rack of uh, dead sex style um, shock and combat weapons, you can also swap them out too. Nice. And I'd imagine that whole system <laughs> has a lot to do with how you'd invite, uh, like, you know, develop or design uh, combat environments or, you know, like places that you need to get into and infiltrate and all that kind of stuff. Um, has the design of the world changed now that the character design, or not the character, like the archetype design has kind of changed? So you're, you're purposefully building in ways to attack as a police officer or as a construction worker, etc. Or was it kind of, you know, like pretty much suited for the change anyway? Um, so one thing we've always focused heavily on is, is what we call 360 approach. It's the ability to take any kind of problem scenario and, and give a whole flurry of options and how you approach it and make it more of the player's choice rather than anything we would impose on them. So that's how we constructed a lot of our world. So now when we start looking at abilities, because the world already supports a lot of approaches, a lot of mechanisms of playing, do I approach from the sky with a drone? Do I go through stealth? Do I go through with gun combat? Do I go through with melee combat? Now you start layering on abilities on top of that, like melee combat abilities or drawing specific abilities or kind of hacking specific abilities. It just layers on top of that stuff that's already there uh, and gives a lot more flavor or makes maybe one route with a particular character a lot more suited and powerful than maybe another, you know? So it's more that, like um, providing more options, making some of those routes more powerful depending on who you're playing as or, 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 or even um, creating fun puzzles. I mean... For example, one, one thing I do that's hilarious is I like to find someone with the hiccups and try and do a stealth layout while I have the hiccups without alerting the gods. That's, that's hours of fun, you know, trying to be sure that you're not going to randomly hiccup at the wrong time and get caught by a god. So you can also create unique and personal challenges and, and, and tricky play styles and, you know, fun that way as well. That's certainly a new take on hard mode. <laughs> um, Joe was the one playing. He, he had one question for you, and it's whether or not yeah. you've purposefully made grandma's rare on purpose or if that was just rare for the preview session and 
because Agrama basically led Legion, I, w- I would also like to know the answer to that question. <laughs> Actually, so the, the Grammas are, I think they're reasonably rare and it, and it can also depend on the, the properties that they carry. Um, and it's, it's, it's really funny. I've had this question a lot. People ask about when we create the world, like how do we force these characters and, you know, generate them and spawn them? Actually, we don't. In some ways, we're at the mercy of the game world. So, for example, if you take London, let's take Shoreditch in London. It's a quirky area, lots of street artists, lots of, like, um, you know, like uh, underground stores and things like that. So if you go to Shoreditch in the game, the game knows that that's an underground slash street artist slash district with its flavor. So it says, I need to spawn lots of street artists and, and cyber goths and body mod people and stuff like that in this area. And those type of people have a, you know, they just tend to have a set of jobs because there's a lot of pubs and counterculture and shortage. So they'll, uh, you know, they'll have more of that kind of stuff. So actually the world based on the kind of demographics and distribution in real world London kind of starts to populate these things too. That's really so cool. for example, if you go, if you go to a uh, shortage, you're not going to see uh, as many grandmas, or if you go to, you know, the, the finance sector and in, in city of London, you're not going to find that many grandmas. Right. But in other areas or more suburbs, you might find some more. So it's actually based on, I guess geolocation properties and and uh, what we call census data about who lives there and why they live there and what jobs are available there, rather than it is about saying, "Hey, we're going to make grandmas rare and only spawn them here and here and here." So I need to get Job to Google like retirement centers of London. <laughs> All right, good to know. This is a stupid question, I think, but I'm still going to ask it. Like the, the characters in my world aren't going to be the same as the characters in your world, so I can't go to Job. Oh, like go to Shoreditch and like you know this person had this you know daily path like he's not going to be able to capture this capture recruit the same grandma that i found in my game is he so there's a, there's a whole bunch of properties that make a character different right some of it's more opinion some of it's just discreet like you might find a grandma but you might not find the same voice she might uh have a different ethnicity she'll definitely have different clothes she'll have a different name if you look at a bio she'll have a different career a different lifestyle a different job if she still has a job um you know, she, she may um, she may have a slightly different um, quirks or personality bits about her. She'll definitely have a different name. She'll have different family contacts. So all of this stuff is layered, you know, and that's kind of what starts to develop the differences between the characters. For example, one of our game director, his uh, his favorite play style or his favorite way to play is to try and use our deep profiling where you can hack into a person's life and follow them through their day and see who they interact with and what problems they have. And he looks for problems that are shared with other people. So he likes to find people that have loads of contacts with them. So say you have a, your grandma might have a bunch of contacts. He would love that because if he does something positive for one of those contacts, then that little family group might all get bonuses and you'll get a, like a, what we call a, a mass recruit. So you might get a three or four people available to you to recruit because you, you managed to puzzle your way through her contacts and find this one person that they're all connected to do something positive for them and now the whole group likes DeadSec and wants to join them. So there's there's all kinds of there's, there's rabbit hole stuff there. Tons of rabbit hole stuff there where you go super far down that creates, you know, gameplay differences, cosmetic differences, stylistic differences between all of the the grannies in your case. That's really, really neat. So- <laughs> Sorry to interrupt. Sorry, uh, Steve, could we just make the next question the last question? Yes. Um so awesome. This I don't know if I'm taking this too far now, but like we're we're getting that reality show with The Sims. Is it, how how possible is it in Watch Dogs Legion to like recruit a construction worker after following around, you know, doing the deep profile, kind of getting a sense of what his life is? How how accurately can you kind of take over and like sim his life 
you know, avoiding main missions and kind of just trying to act as if you were him and like can you can you have that kind of sim style experience or, or to what extent can you have that sim style experience so when you switch to an operative then you become a DeadSec active member and now you're kind of focused on uh, DeadSec related stuff but you can bump into your contacts in the world while you're running around or what happens regularly is you could be running around as an operative and one of your previous operatives that you that is in your in your roster is currently following their own schedule and you can bump into them <laughs> And they can actually be getting into trouble with Albion at the time and you need to rescue them and things like that. And, and it's crazy how tightly this kind of stuff is connected. For example, I was playing with, um, I was playing with a person who wanted a hooligan and I'm like, mm, hooligans, you probably find them with their soccer shirts at a pub, I would think. And they're like, okay, but I don't have any pubs on my map. I'm like, oh, okay, I don't see any pubs nearby that I can remember. Then he profiled someone and it was a bartender. I'm like, oh, well, a bartender is going to work at a pub. We should save them and look at their schedule. So we saved them, we looked at their schedule there enough, he's, he goes to work at some point. I think it was like 3 p.m. So we follow him to his work. It's a pub. We go into the pub. There's the hooligan. We recruit the hooligan, and then we're off on our way. So and 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 that system works in crazy ways that even I uh, surprises me. We we constantly message each other every day when we do play sessions because we're finding new weird and wonderful things that in real life would work, but we didn't realize the system could still support it because it's very deep and complex, and it does. So we find out all these crazy things that that the thing can support. Um, Sean, thank you so much for your time. Appreciate it. It's been a pleasure.